0: Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. It's me, Dave Wakeman. I'm your host. How is everybody doing? In a global pandemic, it seems like that is an obvious question to ask, and I don't want it to come off as flippant or uh, insincere. Uh, I really want to know how everybody's doing, how everybody's holding up. Um, Let me know. Um, Send me a note, daviddavewakeman.com. I really want to hear from you. I really want to make sure everybody's doing okay. Um, If I can be a resource or some sort of support for you, I'm totally here for that. Um, I'd love to hear from people. I want to make sure everybody's all right, you know, because I couldn't keep doing this thing without all of you who are listening right now. My guest today, I'm really super excited for you to hear this conversation. It is a bit of a stretch for me to have someone like Amira Rose Davis on the podcast. Uh, she is a historian at Penn state and I wanted to have her on to talk about, um, the social justice movement and the impact it's having on sports and sports business right now. Um, 20th century American history, uh, the pandemic and college sports. Uh, it's a really great conversation. I can't wait, uh, for everybody to hear Amira, she was great. Um, I feel like I've made this wonderful new friend. Uh, she was introduced to me by Tammy Gaw, who has been on the podcast before. Um, you know, th- I think this is really, really awesome. And I will tell you a little bit more about her uh, first, because or in a minute, because I want to make a little bit of... A few observations and a rant, maybe. I don't know. Um, I feel a little bit as I've gone along and as the pandemic's gone on, I've become more like a, a ranter at the start of these things because I'm trying to help people come up with ideas and ways to move their organizations and their businesses forward coming out of this pandemic, which is really dragging on and it's really, really been difficult for so many millions of people around the world. Um, but what I've been thinking about lately, because I had a couple conversations, a lot of podcasts are coming at you. So, uh, hopefully you have a chance to listen to a lot of them because I mean, these are great podcast guests, um, is right now during the pandemic, one of the things that's come up over and over and over in conversations I've had with people is how to maintain and engage an audience right now. And, I think what I've found is a lot of times we're unsure of how to engage with organizations or with people. Sorry, as an organization, we're we're struggling to engage with people. And I don't know if there's a simple formula. And this is less of a rant and more of a question. I want to know how you and your organizations are engaging with customers, how you're keeping people close. Um, the other example that I'm trying to work towards is to help figure out how people can grow their audience now, how people can kind of tap into some of that unmet need. Some of those people who were maybe uh, tangentially connected to your organization in the past, yet who are now want to support you or uh, find more value in what you do than ever before, because and here's where you get back to me, because everything i tend to focus on involves strategy and marketing and money because what i want to try to figure out and come up with some roadmap and playbook for people to generate revenue um, outside of some of these ideas that are seeming to be more and more difficult to pull off and less and less financially feasible um, like some of the social distance events That are happening, uh, and some of the requests for donations that maybe not going as well as they are, but to find a way to generate an audience, to grow, to connect with an audience, to engage with that audience, to keep them involved, and then to grow revenues that can help bridge the gap between where your organization is today, in the midst of the pandemic, or even if you're taking those first tentative steps out of the pandemic into the future. So if you have ideas uh, or examples of how you're doing audience growth, audience engagement, um, audience revenue generation, please send me an email or connect with me at daviddavewakeman.com because I want to understand and learn from you and share some of the ideas I've learned so far from talking to people uh, and organizations all over the world about this. Um, Together, I want to be able to create a, I don't know if a roadmap is the right word, but a bit more of a guide so that people have a way to collect some of the ideas that are working in other markets and put them to work for you because this is something that we're going to need everybody to work together on to get everybody through. So Dave at DaveWakeman.com, that was completely not a rant. That was more almost a polite request for information. See, I must be getting... um, soft during the pandemic. But um, I want to point you towards some of my friends. So um, always check out Booking Protect, the Global Leaders in Refund Protection. They are doing some really great stuff. Uh, Sophie, who is in charge of the social media, uh, she just started doing an interview series with people and how they're handling uh, the remote working aspects or lessons they've learned during the remote working time or the work from home period and some of the things they're going to use to apply. We also, because of the talking ticket survey that I have been doing, um, we have some really good stuff that's going to come up a little bit later uh, that's going to expand on some of these lessons that's going to probably point towards innovation and things like that. So check out BookingProtect.com. Connect with Simon and Kat. They are some of the best people I know anywhere in the world. Um, So please check them out. Um, Also... I want to point you towards my friends at Activity Stream. Um they are the people who have initiated the We Will Recover campaign that's at wewillrecover.live. Um it's people from all over the world who have an investment in the world of tickets, sports, concerts, entertainment who are giving the ideas uh classes, uh, checklists, um, webinars, anything they possibly can to help people get back on their feet to have a positive way to, to, to wreck their energy in this time. Um, it's really, really great. I did one of the first master classes with um, Frederick Awad from State22 on new revenue streams. Um, it's a great idea, some great content, some great ideas. Check it out we will recover live besides me and stay 22. Uh, there is Angela and Joe from the ticketing professionals conference in Australia, uh, made media, um, TRG, uh, the TPC in Birmingham with Andrew and Carol, uh, QQ with Derek Palmer, uh, in you know, the list goes on. I always forget someone, um, All the people are just, they're donating their time and their energies and their efforts to help find a way for people to get back on their feet after the pandemic. So check that out at wewillrecover.live. As for me, make sure you check out the Talking Tickets newsletter. If you're listening to this podcast, you are definitely a prime candidate for the Talking Tickets newsletter. Um, Go to my website, DaveWakeman.com. There is a newsletter link. Um, you can sign up there or you can send me an email, David, Dave Wakeman.com. And I am posting this on Thursday night, August 6th, 2020. And I am going to p- try to put together a new virtual mastermind group. Uh, I'm going to, I did something like this in DC, DC oriented a few years back. It worked really well. I learned a lot. People learned a lot. The ideas that were generated were really valuable, really actionable, really useful for folks, um, it was great. I want to try to do it virtually, uh, either via phone call or via Zoom in some way. So executives, leaders, um, entrepreneurs in the worlds of ticket and entertainment, I'm going to try to limit it to five or six folks right now, just until I get the the idea fleshed out and I get a little rhythm to it um, because I want to make sure that it is valuable and strategic for everyone. So if you're interested in learning more, talking through this thing with me, hit me up, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. Now let's get to my guest. It's Amira Rose Davis, and she is, like I said before, a historian. Uh, Her focus is 20th century african-american history and we had a really really great conversation because there was so much going on around social justice and how organizations are dealing with black lives matter a few people sent me emails and they were asking me what i thought they, uh, about their the way they were handling things and i didn't necessarily feel that i was the best voice for this because being a middle-aged white man um, you know, it's not my lived experience, even though um, I definitely am an ally and a supporter of the cause Um, I definitely you know, understand exactly why um, people are frustrated and people were um, you know, these frustrations are boiling up in this moment, but I wanted to have somebody on who could talk about this from a historical context who studies and works and operates in the world of sports and entertainment to put it in that context and somebody who just really brought an, a different perspective to this conversation. Uh, so we, we hit on a whole ton of stuff. Um, we talked about, you know, things about the status quo and, uh, f- Challenges that the pandemic is bringing up in not just sports and entertainment and our businesses now, but in society as a whole, which made a moment like this where um, the Black Lives Matters and the George Floyd protest um, were able to catch hold and really become a um, big part of the people's um, experience right now. We talked about uh, the college football season um Amira is at Penn State, and it's really um, whether or not the football season goes forward uh, impacts her. And as I'm recording this, Penn State just announced today that they're going to have no fans at college football this year. Um, So we talk about that. We talked about uh, the fan culture. We talked about Pearl Jam, strangely enough, right? Um, We talked about I think we hit on some cancel culture idea. We talked about bravery. We talked about what it takes for you as an organization. If you want to support uh, social justice and things like black lives matter to move from just make it a feel good. I've posted uh, a black square on Instagram to put real action and real, um, effort behind it. Uh, we talked about how to be proactive. We talked about women's sports. Uh, we went on and on about, uh, our shared love of Megan Rapino and Sue Bird um you know it really i think it's an interesting conversation i hope it is a good conversation i hope people learn something from it um i share some of the stuff about myself that i don't always or have not always talked about um that sheds a little bit of light on my opinion on these things um, you know, Amir is fantastic. I mean, we this, this recording is an hour or so. Um, we spent probably another hour talking, you know, either before and after the podcast. And I think we could have gone for several more hours. Um, we, I, I mean, I had so much fun talking to her. Um, I feel like I, I really do feel like I have not great new friend. It was awesome. So, you know, she, there's a bunch of stuff that she's working on right now and she, check out her podcast, check out her, um, panel on NPR coming up next week. Um, she's great and I'm dragging this introduction on a long, long time. Uh, so without anything else from me, here is my conversation with Amira Rose Davis on the business of fun podcast. <laughs> I want to welcome Amira Rose Davis to the Business of Fun podcast. Amira, how are you?
1: I am good. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Yeah, this is, um, I'm going to say that you probably are going to be one of the smarter uh, guests that I've ever had. I mean, when it's compared <laughs> to me, uh, that that's a low bar, a bar that I set for myself. But no, I, I'm joking. I'm really excited to talk to you today um, because you are here to tell me how college football is going to happen this year and why Alabama the greatest.
1: well yeah college football is certainly happening if you take a look outside you can see everybody is pushing ahead Despite contrary to literally all logic, um, and no comment on uh, on Alabama, they'll they'll find a way to win even when there's no season.
0: That's right, we, we, we win no matter what. Um, I I, <laughs> <laughs> I figured I would try to trip you up early because um, you know I got to always have the upper hand in these conversations, especially when the people are a lot uh, smarter than me. Um, but actually, I'm really excited because. I was telling you before that, you know, after since the pandemic started, I've had the ability to really connect with some people and have like much more interesting conversations with folks than maybe I did in the past. So I'm really grateful to have you on because you were introduced by a a common friend, Tammy Gall who has been on the podcast before, and all we did was laugh. So the bar is really high for our conversation. Um, but I want to start out by asking you, because we were talking about college football the other day when we were chatting about setting this thing up. And you and I, I think, share a common um, idea that uh, it, it may college football may be able to come back, but it's whether or not it should come back in the fall. Um, and I think it lays at the nature of the relationship between um, these athletes their you know their race and the position they're put in by the schools and I know that at Penn State you focus a lot on uh, issues around sports and gender and race and so I'm really interested to hear uh, somebody who really studies this stuff regularly talk about the context of you know sports in general this moment we're dealing with right now and some of these issues in a like a more thoughtful way than sometimes we hear about yeah, lot.
1: absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, I mean it, you I think it's you're right exactly about this moment. Um you know, I am a historian by training. I uh did my degree at uh Johns Hopkins and I'm at Penn State now, which has of course a robust sporting culture and, and Watching all sports, but especially collegiate sports really try to navigate this moment in between a global pandemic and a kind of moment of racial reckoning um has been uh, let's use the word interesting uh and I think that what we're seeing here is um, cracks in a system that has really been set up on the backs of of unpaid labor by uh, uh, majority black labor disproportionately to, you know, those who are managing and profiting off of sports like college football. And, you know, even though we're talking about all sports here, um, part of it is that this is just kind of laying bare some of those fissures in the system, some of those kind of disruptions of these kind of foundational myths, the same way it did back in March. If you remember, um, as we were kind of edging into uh, early quarantine, many schools were shutting down and yet still trying to send their basketball team to March Madness. Um, And People were like, hey, hold on, hold on, wait. I thought it, it, they were student athletes. I thought that, you know, we cared about health and safety, and if faculty can't travel for research, why should they be able to travel to play a game? Um, oh, yeah, money. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that is operating now, and you see schools have gone into voluntary workouts. You had places like Ohio State that required athletes to sign waivers, um, uh, COVID waivers, for participation. Unfortunately, you saw cases popping up where people are practicing again. UT, Clemson. Clemson had like 23 cases and then kept practicing. And then the next week reported 13 more. Um, we've just reported eight cases here. And it's just each time you do that, it's this evidence like this. We need to just stop. Like, And I'm really sympathetic. I'm really empathetic to like, especially I live in a college town where the local economy is completely tied, right, to athletics, specifically um, the football team. And in in the spring with the blue and white game canceling, I mean, that that costs $1 million in the town. And, and I'm really empathetic to that, but also, you know, this entire system has been constructed like this and it's a house of cards. And so now what we're seeing is disruptions to that, um, both by COVID, but also athletes themselves are starting to speak out and starting to challenge, um, this moment challenge being put in this position, um, and the fact that these these universities are still kind of clinging to the idea that that they need to play. Um, And it feels like, I mean, I think Mike Gundy said, you know, OK, state coach said the quiet part out loud a few weeks ago. And he was like, listen, 19, 20 year old, they get COVID, they'll be back at it. But like, we need to take that risk because we need to get moving through the state of Oklahoma again. And I think that that's so significant. Like you're saying, yeah, that we do need to take the risk because they'll be fine. But what stake is the entire economy of the state based on what they do. And I think that that to me is 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 really the meat and potatoes of what we're talking about here when it comes to college sports.
0: Well, it's also not true. Right, what Mike Gundy said has been, you know, proven in cases, long and, and big and small, that that's not necessarily true, right? Because we've seen uh, cases, I believe, in California where teenagers have died. Uh, I saw a Facebook post from a uh, mother of a college football player at the University of Indiana, who's 20, who's now struggling for his, you know, fighting for his life. Um, the pitcher, and I don't remember his name, of the Boston Red Sox is 27 years old and he's out for the season because of heart-related issues, uh, based around the virus. Um, it's, to me, it's completely a false narrative. And it, to me, it, it raises a question, and I may not ask this exactly the way I want to, so if I don't, forgive me. Um, but instead of looking at things we can do, it's, shouldn't we be asking the questions about what we should be doing? Because, When parents send their kids to college, right, and um, especially the the athletes, because a lot of these kids, the only way that they have to get out of the the situation some of them grew up in is through sports and athletics. They're investing all of their hopes and aspirations in in somebody taking care of their kids. To me, um, you know, would you do the same thing for your kids, right? Would you rush your kids out and put them in a situation that you can't guarantee is safe? Uh, You know, and that's what this comes back to to me because – the, you know, you do see that this, you know, we don't know what's going on with this virus and we don't know um what long-term impacts it's going to have. You know, so then the, I guess the question is, you know, is what's the difference between what we should be doing and what we can be doing? Again, I told you I might not have I, the right question.
1: I mean, no, but I do think it's a good one, right? Because I think, like, obviously what we're, what is, <laughs> what we should be doing, there's huge gaps between what we should be doing and what. Is already happening, right? And I think that for me, one of the things that happened with, with being in quarantine and COVID is it, it grinded a lot of these institutions to a stop, whether it's, uh, college sports or professional sports, the Olympics, whatever. And in that moment, it seemed like there was an opportunity to really think about what the world looked like on the other side of this. And and with the kind of rise of um kind of protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder, I think there was like two conversations that really kind of wove together saying, OK, the status quo was not working for everybody. And these are ways that certain systems are actually harmful. And what if we instead of rushing back to return to, you know, what once was, why don't we? time to build what could be and I think that that's really true when it comes to college sports especially I think you made you know a really essential point that you know it's a really hard position to be in the I don't know if you had a chance yet to read uh, a united group of Pac-12 players put a a list uh, a a tremendous statement and listed demands out yesterday that are focusing on health and safety racial justice and economic rights Um, and you know One of the most uh, kind of heart-wrenching things that I saw was uh, a player who retweeted it and said, listen, I agree with all of these things, but, you know, I... I agree with this movement, what they're fighting for, especially in terms of health concerns about not playing this season. But it's not an option for me because I have people that need to eat. So if the NCAA wants to use me as a lab rat, it is what it is. This is Washington State um, defensive lineman Lamont McDoug- McDougal. And I think that that strikes at the heart of one of the things you're saying is that we've created lots of places in this country, not just college sports, that put people into situations of forced choices where this is the farm system to, uh you know, to the league. and And it's created because schools are like, yes, we're having a season and here's a voluntary workout, quote unquote, voluntary. It is putting young kids in the position to sacrifice their health. And as you pointed out, we know now as the data continues to emerge that it doesn't matter if you're 20, this, this, um this disease is a monster and it has lasting effects, even if you beat the initial round of it. And so I think that you're definitely looking at um a moment where players are not, are recognizing this and recognizing that they're guinea pigs and recognizing that they, and, and feel. I've talked to a few of them that are talking about how disposable they feel to the university, how disposable they feel um to these systems that they prop up. And I think that that is a really kind of disheartening feeling. But also what has happened is they've used that as fuel to to mobilize and to begin to implement and put into place the what should we be doing. And I think that that is what your question reminded me of because, um, there's a lot, right? We can first and foremost think about what is, what does it look like to have equitable sporting systems in, in collegiate sports, to have a billion dollar industry that, you know, is definitely, um, padding the pockets of a lot of people, but not, not students on the ground. Um, what does it look like to think about even though the regulations that we govern the sport with the NCAA has really, really strict training. For regulations at a time where people need to be, you know, I've seen a lot of people transfer to be closer to home during this moment. Um, and every time they do that, they're risking sitting out, they're risking their eligibility. It's time to kind of disrupt that and, and rethink that. What does it look like to um, think through coaching staffs that are, are disproportionately white versus the students that they're coaching? And what does that mean? Um should you have a diversity person who's employed by athletics and not just kind of on a voluntary basis? We, you know, obviously had an issue here with, um, our head, uh, basketball coach, Patrick Chambers, who a, tra- a student transferred from the program and recently came out that he said, listen, I transferred because of an inappropriate comment that was made to me. And the aftermath of that was that instead of. Sitting chambers down and talking about why this was racially insensitive and going through that. Um, I was referred to a performance psychologist to learn how to manage with his personality. And, and then I look up and he's in this moment being presented as a, um, a panelist, an expert on dealing with Racial justice in this moment. And, and it's like, why? Because of your proximity to the black men you coach. Um, and so I think that it's a moment to, to even think about staffing or thinking about what, what can we do to, um, make sure that there's equity, that there's, there's, um, a voice for students, that there is, um, you know, protection from harm. And, and that is the moment that we have in front of us. And what I've seen, unfortunately, is a lot of people are shying away from that second part of your question, what should we be doing? And the only people I really see kind of answering that are a lot of these student-led organizations that are saying, this is what we're proposing. These are our demands. This is what we want to see. This is what we want the new normal to look like.
0: Yeah, I, I saw the PAC-12 thing, and in partnership with that, I also saw the reports from Liberty and from TCU, which were um, were pretty appalling, right, to, to think that you know, to go back to like this situation is happening at Penn State, which is where like you're considered a great leader on diversity because you coach black kids. Um, right. That doesn't make you a leader at all. You can still be a complete, uh you know, ass and still yes. and coach kids. Right. Because the thing is, for me, when I hear these stories, I go again, I, I grew up in a little bit different situation where. Um, I was you know I was the minority where I was the only white kid on my bus with, with all kinds with you know and it was all black kids so I learned early on that like hey look it doesn't matter who you are if you're cool you're cool and if you're a jerk you're a jerk um you know so and I feel grateful for that now because when I hear these stories um, I'm going like this I'm going I know plenty of people uh, you know black and white who treat people like garbage and just because of the um, position they're in they're given, way too much. Uh, leeway, and they're allowed to act in ways that we wouldn't tolerate in other environments. And, you know, and I, and I hope that, you know, there's this talk about cancel culture, which, you know, I think that I was reading this great newsletter this morning by Anad Girdidas, who writes about income inequality and monopoly power and all these things. He did an interview with Joy Reid, who uh, I don't remember exactly how long, I think it was about 15 or 16 years ago. But Joy Reid got caught in um, controversy because she had made some insensitive comments about gay, lesbian, and transgender folks and she said people need to have an off ramp. And what I hear you talking about is giving people the room to be better. But when they're not being better, you we have to really stand up and defend, you know, in the case of the kids at college, they need people that protect them. They can't always do it on themselves because they're essentially powerless because the NCAA has them um in a unfair advantage where if they want to transfer to be closer to the home or if they want to transfer um because the coach is being uh insensitive or being you know abusive they can't do it and um you know so to me it's like always about putting people in a position to be successful and helping them achieve their goals i mean that's me maybe i'm a, a hippy dippy but i don't know
1: no, I I completely agree with that. And I think that, you know, one of the things is this, this conversation around cancel culture has become, I think, really a bit unfortunate because, you know, some people will write like whole op-eds in the New York Times about how they're being canceled and they have no platform. And it's like, hello, awareness. Any, I any want awareness. to be,
0: have no platform like the New York Times myself. Right. I'm exactly, just telling you that exactly, right now. If anybody's exactly. listening. Both Amira and I, we will have, take, absolutely take that not platform. Yeah, cancel house.
1: me if that's what that means. Exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly right. But I,
1: you know, and I, but I think that that's the thing, right? It's like a lot of it just comes down to power. And I think that, you know, so much of what people are like, oh, I've been canceled. It's like, no, you've just received pushback for once. Um, it's like you're not being canceled because somebody's telling you what you're saying is harmful. And I think it's all about like how people respond to that. And like that's the, that's the point, right? Like that's where we are is like what I think what gets exhausting about this is that so often the part of the conversation, especially when you're talking about race, gets stuck because the on ramp to that conversation is where people are stopped. Because they're like, I'm uncomfortable. They're like, why, like, are people going the defensive? And it's like, we're not even on the damn highway. Like, we're on the on-ramp. We're just, like, we're not even having the conversation. We're really having a conversation about how you don't want to have the conversation. And I think that that is, um, you know, a, a huge barrier that we're seeing. And so, I don't know. This whole thing has been very exhausting because I think it's one hand to navigate global pandemic but also to do it in the middle of a revolution is just
0: (laughs) (laughs) well well, an important thing that i learned right because you know i I shared with you and everybody who's going to have heard it now that you know i grew up where i was the minority right and i'm as white as it gets at this point um you know every stereotype of a a white man i probably fit every one of them almost to the the t except for maybe i don't tuck my polo short shirt into my shorts (laughs) um other than that i probably have them all checked um but I never even thought about the fact, though, that like, because some of these conversations people struggle with, and again, this is like it was timely that I read this this article this morning, because most of the time, if you want to have these conversations, it also becomes the burden of the black person to have, to help the white person along, yeah. and I and and I realize like being in a position I am, it's really kind of my responsibility to show other people like, hey, this is what it looks like, you know, as a you know, fairly privileged white man, to you know understand what people who don't look like me are dealing with. Right. And you know, cause Mm -hmm. my friend, uh, you know his wife is Asian, and she was, talking, and he, they were worried about when they moved to, to the states about uh, her feeling out of out of place because she would be a minority for the first time. Um, and I, you know, I was like, I never even thought of that because I don't think of them by like, you know, you know what their background, what the, what race right. they are. I just think of them. I was like, I really like those guys. I like hanging out with them, and they're awesome. Um, and I realized and it made me reflect on that, and it made me go, hey. I have a responsibility, too, because, you know, people don't all look at the world the same way. And I don't and, you know, and it's it's probably helpful if you do have a a, a point of view on something, you know, that's coming from me um, to help people see where there might be gaps in the way they view the world or see where they're making making assumptions that maybe aren't accurate or, aren't you know, they, they don't reflect reality because I think. One of the things we don't talk about enough is the narrative around a lot of these um, issues and ideas, because it becomes very easy for the old, tired um, memes and and ideas to really get entrenched and be incredibly difficult to get dislodged. Um, Yeah. yeah, And I mean, you know, I don't know if that's a question or not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, well, I think that. I think that, you know, that's part of this. I think all of us who are kind of doing, who are historians, especially 20th century history, African American history, like have been busier <laughs> under, under this moment. And I think that, you know, one of the things that is hard is that sometimes you're like, you know, I was asked, uh, I don't know, every, almost every interview that I've done over this, this period has been like, great. So do you have hope? right or like what are the next steps or like what should be done and after one particularly long day i think it was my seventh interview of the day and i was kind of losing the like you know media filter that sometimes you have um i was like have you ever seen that tony morrison clip i don't know if you've ever seen this clip but i was like she's on i think she was talking to charlie rose like many years ago and she's asked about this and she's saying well my feeling is if you only can feel tall when somebody's on their e- knees and you have serious work to do. And she was like, and it seems to me that white people have serious work to do. Leave me out of it. <laughs> you go figure out what to be done. And I, it's interesting in this moment because a lot of people are saying, well, what's different? What's changed? And it's like, well, people have been protesting. People have been mobilizing. People have been raising these issues. Really the, the thing that has tipped it in this moment is that other people um, white allies have have started to give a damn, um, and this wasn't even the when it comes to even the murder of George Floyd. It wasn't even the first time that we had somebody on camera saying the words "I can't breathe." Like that's how not new it was, um, and so sometimes I think it is hard because there's a certain fatigue around feeling like you're saying the same thing over and over or going back and, and walking through or saying I'm ch- sharing my perspective. And I think that one of the things that has happened is people have done really good job of like curating resource lists of like podcasts or shows or books. And it's like, you know, people write books, <laughs> read, read. Get it on Audible, go for a walk and listen. Um, and so I think that that's one of the things that... is- it It'll educate been. you
0: and help your mental health at the same time. <laughs> right! Look at that, two for
1: one. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I, I just did this, um, you know, workshop and I was like, you know, the first step is introspection. It's figuring out where your blind spots are, where your gaps are, and then deciding if you care or not. Because if you don't care, then you're just like content with that, then okay. But if you do care, then like, Caring is not enough. Like, what is the next step? What is the actionable item on your to-do list next around that? And um, I think that's the work.
0: Well, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I guess like I didn't even know you were going to talk about it like that. It was it came out of a moment like, of course I was an ally, right? Like, it, you know, I mean, <laughs> it was, You know, but was, what was I doing about it? And that was the thing, right? right? And, and and I realized that like I had a responsibility to myself. Right, if that if I if this is something I care about and I mm-hmm. believe is wrong, to take action, because it, it, you know, who do, who am I to not take action on something I know is wrong, right? Or if I you know, and I I wrote about it, and these conversations are definitely can be difficult, but I was like, on to me, it's offensive, right? Because I was looking at you know, I think I mentioned to you, right? A lot of the work I do is about giving people control and power, because the way that the, the economy and the system has worked over the last Forty years, it's made people feel more and more powerless, right? And we're seeing the yeah. impact of that right now during the pandemic. And then I, during the George Floyd, when this, uh, when it first started, when all of the, you know, protests started in Minnesota, I wrote in my a weekly newsletter. I wrote, I said, look, you know, if you are somebody who feels frustrated because the average American worker hasn't uh, received a raise in forty years, mm. um, imagine what you feel like if you were the average black family who hasn't received a raise since, since the fifties. Right. Or you've been forced out into, you know, you can stay home and, you know, work from home or work remotely. But. Black and brown people are getting hit with this disease and the, the virus three, four, five times the, the rate of white people because they're the ones out there doing – mostly doing the work in a lot of cases, right? Imagine the amount of frustration when you see that like um, – and I don't have the number, but how more like how much more likely you are to have a bad incident with the police if you're black or die in jail if you're black or any of these things, right? right? I mean these things are – I'm not making them up, and I'm not trying to be like, how, "Look how woke I am." Um, you know, if anything, I'm probably not woke enough most of the time. But these are things that you don't even have to look very far for, and it's just really, really, to me, it was really, really frustrating to see these things and to, to see people um, almost, will, you know, or actually, it was really exciting to see people not fall back into complacency around them.
1: Right. Exactly, exactly, and,
0: you know and that, and that's my journey right, and I don't know that um if that's helpful with anybody, but it, it might be, I don't know because I don't know that people are always honest about the journey that they take, right, right, or getting from somewhere, right, because I mean I, I mean I don't know i I have no idea how other people deal with it, and I think that's probably why I was like excited to talk to you about this because maybe if if I'm able to talk to you about it, it'll help other people understand too how to take action because. Action where, you know, where the idea becomes a reality, right? Without action, there's nothing.
1: And I think, you know, I think to your point, like, people don't share their journey, like, and I think sometimes that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Like, one of the, one of my favorite things about teaching in a classroom is watching the, the, intellectual kind of trajectory or, or journey that students are taking and they're getting it from multiple places and you just kind of get to see a sliver of it. But so much of it happens beyond your classroom. Um, and, and I was saying my favorite thing ever is when you get an email years later from a student who's like, uh, I, this, I understand in a different way now or, Oh, I get this or, Oh, this point just like really crystallized for me. And it's like, I've had to, uh, you know, I'm somebody who am like, I like results right then. <laughs> I'm <Like, it's> just <laughs> such a like impatient kind of Gemini millennial. But I was going to say, really... it's
0: like the ADHD mind that my friend uh, oh Peter my Shankman God. talks about. I'm it's like, I'm like I'm I got to have it now. Exactly.
1: <laughs> and so, um, I had to really get used to the fact that like as an educator, I was planting seeds and them, but I didn't necessarily see them blossom. and, and because it is such a process. And so sometimes when I get those emails and sometimes it'll be like plot twists, like never thought this person was going to become this, you know, bloom in this way. But it's really, you know, for me a, a bit, it, it was a helpful reminder. Um, but I, I, you know, just did a civil rights course and, you know, I had a student who was very clearly working through like processing the information about civil rights but also like rethinking a lot of things that um he was just like holding in his head and you could literally see him it felt like a movie playing on his face like trying to fit information in class discussions and information from his text or uh, from the books we were reading or information from the the testimonies or you know presentations of his peers, you could literally try and like squeeze him trying to squeeze it into his brain. And it it was like the square, you know, square, what is it, a round peg in a square hole. And it was so fascinating to kind of watch that evolution. And I think talking through personal evolutions and how we've got to places helps because it also gives a roadmap it's also like oh here's like books i read or here's the conversations i had or here's how i like rethought my own experiences or my own positionality on something and again like if you care and i think sometimes like what what i find so annoying and we've seen a lot here is like the performativity of it it's like don't you know we see this especially like on martin luther king day when like The FBI will be like, happy Martin Luther King day, or the CIA. It's like, (laughs)
0: like,
1: you, you killed him. Like, what are you talking about? Like, don't, (laughs) you terrorized him his entire life. Like, don't put a little cute little, yeah. If you're listening
0: to this and you don't know how absurd that is, uh, just Google it and you'll be like, Oh, no, that's like craziest thing (laughs) I've ever heard.
1: It's so absurd. And so I think that there's this way that, especially like doing a black screen or saying black lives matter. Sometimes it was coming from places that thought were really performative. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, this is not, this is like hard to s- to watch. Like it's almost more annoying. Like just be over there and like own the fact that you don't give a damn instead of like wasting and clogging up our feeds with- with whatever bullshit you just did in like Microsoft Paint or whatever. Like it's just... Um, frustrating in that way. And so I think that that's kind of the, the juncture that we're at is like, all right, we've had the kind of performative outpouring. What's going to be sustainable? What's, you know, what what's next? Um, I think is the question I keep returning to.
0: Yeah. And, and to me, that, that, and that helps actually. You, I don't even know if you knew you were doing this, but that helps me because there's a question too I want to ask because about, you know, how, how the teams and the leagues and some of these organizations can continue to push for change and continue to help advocate for these issues. Because I think that's, um, you know, it helps move it beyond just, you know, oh my God, we put our black screen up on Instagram and we got a hundred likes from all of our, uh, from people and they're like, oh, look how great we are. Um, You know, it moves it on to, you know, the next level, right? Because I think we see it all the time where, um, you know, things will be hot for a minute. Right, and then they'll they'll get they'll have a tremendous amount of buzz, and it's especially true now, because I think we I was telling you or we were talking about like I can't pay attention to the moment to moment news because if not it drives me insane because yeah it it, it drives me mad, um but if you're a a team or a league or an organization, right now you know and you you know you you kind of you want to support you know social justice or Black Lives Matter. Or you know you want to be supportive to the kids on your team if you're a college football team um you know any of these things you know what do you do to move past you know just that sort of like well, we made our video um well, we, we you know we we hung our banner um you know we posted on Facebook and Instagram and twitter you know what what's the next what's the next step look like and and maybe a second part of that is like how do you communicate those values if you're going to make them a part of who you are to right. your sponsors and partners?
1: Right. I mean, I think that, you know, first of it, it requires bravery, like you're going to piss off people. Um, and, and I think that has to be a step you're willing to take. Um, and I mean, take it from ask any black person who's like, on Twitter, right? Like, it mentions won't be fun, right? Like there's going to be a backlash. There's going to be a pushback. But, um, you know, so I think like you just have to kind of decide what your priority is and, and kind of fearlessly move ahead with that. I think that um, a lot of it is about marshalling resources. So a lot of these things are structural issues. So figuring out how you can um, contribute to dismantling structures that you perhaps maintain or benefit from. And some of it is like individual things, of course. Like if you have people in your organization that you know are being abusive or you know are harmful or you know are, you know, saying racial slurs or, you know, take action now. Like stop reacting to things. Like be proactive about it. But then certainly thinking about like, okay, what resources do we have? Like I, I was talking to various organizations and not every, everybody's not in the position to go and have the magic wand to go and change the world tomorrow. But what do you control and where from where you are, what can you marshal? And so I think um, you know, talking to soccer teams, right, who are saying, well, we don't have diverse teams or like how do we talk about this? And it's like, well, you know, if you care to ever have diverse teams, then you have to talk about it. And it it's like, what what can you do? Can you offer scholarship? Can you have mentoring programs? Can you align with organizations who are already trying to, you know, dismantle the kind of pay to play Club sport youth that you of so many youth sports have become that is, um, you know, creating some of this disparity and access to, to various types of sports, you know, thinking beyond the pitch. This is happening. If you look at Europe um one of the things that they've piloted is like okay so we're going to stop stop the game if we hear ch- uh chants from the stands and we're going to give a warning and then we're going to you know kick fans out and they have this kind of set program this was the first year that they you know now there's no fans now people right. can't go to the but, game so but before it <laughs> happened
0: though they totally backed it up i mean there was exactly. several instances where they they shut it down right and they exactly. it's like a zero tolerance policy but the, and I'm glad you brought it up because they followed through uh you know at least from what I saw pretty well
1: exactly exactly and I think you know that's part of it and like i was i I uh went to school in Amherst I grew up in in Western mass and I was thinking about this I've been really um, you know thinking about how much fan culture impacts um People's relationships to, to teams, to cities, to, to areas. Um, and I see this, I lived in Philadelphia. I saw this was also true. Um, you know, about like, what is the experience to, to go to the tailgate to like, even here at state college when there's confederate flags, um, at some places in the tailgate, like, what does that look like? And so sometimes it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all of the things as well. And, and then enforcement matters. So we've seen things that I never thought would happen, which is NASCAR, um, banning the Confederate flag and the Washington football team changing its name. Um, and then the next step for that is like, you, you can't rest on those laurels. You can't say, look, look, we did a thing. Like, first of all, it's absurd. Um, Dan Snyder, I'm talking to you that it took this damn long, but okay. Um, and, but like, what's next is enforcement. So, what is it going to look like for NASCAR to actually like enforce this? Like, what if so, if somebody's wearing a shirt with the flag? Like, what what does that look like? What does it look like? Um, you changed a team name, but people are still going to be in the stands with this kind of caricature with with this. Like, what is what does it actually look like to? Um, to keep doing the work and not just like applaud yourself, not like be like, okay, we got we got a thousand likes on this, like, great, good job, We're, works over, we did it. Um, and so I think that that is one of the things that it requires. And if you don't have the people in the room right now that are helping you brainstorm or coming up with those answers or, or thinking through the solutions, then you don't have the right people in the room. Um, and maybe start there. Um, so. I think that that's, that's going to be the task that's in front of many sporting organizations moving forward is, you know, and, and I had this conversation with my kids theater program, right? Who were like, came to all the black parents and were like, help us write our anti-racism statement or anti, you know, and it was just like, okay, um, a, a lot of this is good. Like what is, what comes next? Like the statement is a good start. How are you going to, ensure that there's diverse productions. Mm-hmm. If generally musical theater doesn't necessarily offer like you don't you don't get the rights to a lot of it. And also none of us in this lily white town want to sit through a production of Dream Girls with white kids doing it. Like this is it's be awkward. It well be awkward for everybody. Like we'd have to pretend that's not gonna be awkward. But that doesn't mean that you can't think creatively about figuring out how to open up Spaces for people. And so that was like one of those conversations. Like, first of all, you have power. Like, try to demand rights to different. Productions instead of the same old. Like my daughter this year was in Bye Bye Birdie and Freaking Music Man. Like it's it gets exhausting. How many times now. do we need to um, see
0: those same two productions in every school musical? We first don't, of not we
1: never need middle school kids doing Bye Bye Birdie. Like let's just be clear about this. Like that is not a production that works well with middle schoolers. No, <laughs> like,
0: that's exactly that, right. Oh gosh, like let's put those kids in the position the kids to be successful.
1: <laughs> Exactly like the kids were like, oh it's satire like when you when you have middle schoolers telling you that their production is satire to get through it it's like you probably probably need to go back to the drawing board um but yeah so I mean I think that that's that's what people are doing and I think you can already start to see like who are like um I was impressed with Peloton I'm kind of shocked but like um very impressed because they followed up like with a monetary commitment to a multi-year 100 million dollar commitment that had plans that were both external and internal and like raising their minimum wage for workers there and thinking through um uh you know initiatives that they can take externally but also like internally addressing the culture within the organization and so like you can see when people are taking active action and people who are like, look, I put up my black screen. What more do you want from me?
0: Right. Well, and and I think there's a flip side to this. And and I mean, we might have touched on it a little bit earlier, but if we haven't, um, I, you know, I think one of the things that happens too is that um, I don't know if it goes along with the cancel culture or where it would actually fit as far as a label goes, or maybe it doesn't need a label. But then it's also like hitting back at people who say, hey, look, we're reflecting to make sure that we aren't, you know, unintentionally biased. Like I remember how um, on the, social media, I saw uh, Pearl Jam, the band, step back and they said, hey, look, we want to investigate to make sure that we aren't intentionally uh, being racist in some of the things we're doing and we, that we are creating enough diversity. And people were like going nuts. And I was like going, I don't know that Pearl Jam's necessarily the right people to be attacking uh, about yeah. like, the, what they're doing because they have been pretty... Um, strong advocates for a lot of causes that I think people would be like, I wish more people would stand up like that. So, um and I use them as a, you know, an example, cause I think that it shows the absurdity of like, you know, kind of kicking people for not coming along fast enough when you know, I think you should be applauding people for taking the first step and then helping them take the next step.
1: Yeah. And I would say like, I think there's also a degree between applause and acknowledgement, right? Like I think that, I think that, Part of, I think part of what happens is that, um, people will do, take a small step and then, some people like applaud it and then it gets really easy to be like, okay, like I'm done. And I think that there's a way to say, I'm acknowledging that you're doing the work. Like I'm not going to give my, my co-host Shireen always says like, I'm not going to give you a whole cookie yet. Like I'm going to give you half a cookie. <laughs> I'm going to give you the ingredients. Like we'll, we'll get to the cookie. Um, but I see that you're moving forward. I see that you're, you're doing the work. Um, but also, you know, if the bar is so low that it's in the basement, and you and somebody takes like a a, a mini step over it, um, which not in, in necessarily in Pearl Jam's case, but like in in some of these other cases, you you do a little thing and then some of the applause comes. Like there's a way to acknowledge that that movement is happening without, um, you know, throwing a parade for <laughs> for for stepping over a fairly low bar. And I think that to me is like where I find the most um kind of long-term uh movement building kind of tactic, right? That affirms and recognizes the work being done, but also is like, all right, great. Like, it's like when you have a trainer who's like, you're doing great. And also like 10 more.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, if you can do uh, the squat with, for eight reps, I want to see you do it for 12.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and I think there's definitely a way that you're like, you just did tremendous at doing those 10. Like you can't, you have more in you. Um, and it's not mutually exclusive at all.
0: Yeah. I mean, and in, in to use this example. A Pearl Jam. To me, the the way it came off was like, "Hey, look, these are this is a, a band and a group and an organization that, uh, you know, by for all intents and purposes, have dedicated a lot of their resources to highlighting causes that maybe don't get the um, the light that they need and do stuff, and yet they are still, conf- you know, willing to look at what they're doing to improve, you know, their organization and how they live in the world. To me, that was the positive message because that's the message at I want everybody to see. It's like going, hey, we've all made mistakes, right? Like, I'm 45 now, so the 25-year-old Dave was a complete uh, jerk, right? And he was a complete complete numpty, to use my favorite Australian word. Um, But (laughs) over the time, right, I've recognized those things that maybe weren't doing me the best service or weren't doing my community the best service. And so I want, you know, so when I see somebody challenge themselves or, you know, somebody saying, hey, look, I love this thing, but I want still can hope for it to be better. Like when you look at the country, I love America and I want it to be better. And you do that by like not resting on your assumptions. I think that's something you do support and you do applaud. And I, you know, and, and that you know, I'm excited when I see people take that, you know, take that stance myself.
1: Yeah, no, and I, and I think that that's the thing is like if you, if you care about things, if you're in institutions or organizations that you care about, um, and, and you want to do the work and, and you want to, you know, it's not going to, there might not be trophies. There might not be ribbons or, you know, it, it's, it can be thankless at times. Um, but you have to kind of find your own meaning, uh, within it. And I think that that's, you know, you need enough people doing that if you want to see, if you want to see, um, change happening and so i think that's that's for me where we are and and we're having these conversations of course with our children as they're confronting this in various ways my daughter you know is musical theater obsessed and you know was able to like think about this and have these discussions um in this moment I, with we were in new york um the week that broadway shut down we just seen a production and you know, we had a conversation about like the economics, right, of, of the industry. And we had a conversation about like, what does this look like now? Like, why are unions important? <laughs> right? And like, yeah. there, I think there's a, a moment here to really even think about like how we have conversations with those around us, particularly our children. Um, we're, we're, we were having a great, um, conversation around it, um, when, uh, There was, like, a letter put out to Dear White American Theater, and we were able to, like, read through that together and think about it in a way that then she could take and think about what lessons are in there, what grievances are in there that also applied to her situation in middle school. And I thought that was really great because some of the work that then was being done or that people had to wait until they were 25 to have in a professional setting, she was able to start having at 13 (laughs) in middle school. And like, I, again, going back to like, I don't know how that will be watered. I don't know what comes of that, but I have to believe that that is starting, you know, somewhere further along than some of the conversations that were had when current people having these, in professional settings, um, didn't necessarily have people interested in having these conversations when they were her age. Yeah.
0: Oh, and to be fair, there's still people who don't want to have the conversation.
1: Period. Oh, yeah, sir.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I dealt with that when I went to give a speech one time, and um, recently, not not a long time ago, just before the the pandemic. And you know, one of the things that people were talking about is like, uh, we if you can come how, somehow throw a brick into this idea that the best strategy and the best way of approaching the future is to get older and whiter. Um, would, would you do that for us? And I was just like, Oh, really? This is like amazing to me that this is still, um, a thing that you think that like, just like let you know, continuing to allow your audience to get older and less diverse is going to be, um, a winning strategy for the long run. But Hey, I'm I learn something new every day. Right now. One before we before we wrap up here, I do want to. We talked about a bunch of stuff, and one thing I think too that like I can highlight some of the change and highlight the percent, the, 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 the change of perception, I think is the way is the fact that um, women's sports not viable because uh, we were joking about <laughs> <laughs> we were joking about that before about how the conversation has changed pretty quickly, uh, and I was saying how I'm a huge Seattle Storm fan and. Uh, that I will not buy anybody's argument that Sue Bird is not the greatest player in WNBA history. <laughs> um, but it's been exciting to see because I think that, um, you know, in its own way, women's sports has something extremely um, valuable to offer people and to see people, um, you know, embrace it and, and, and find things they enjoy about it is great. And then I'm also, if anybody's listening, I totally want one of those WNBA hoodies. Uh, but.
1: I know, like the commodity. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I gotta get a, find out, get enough pull about this. Um but, you know, from your vantage point, studying this stuff and working on this all the time, what would you say has been maybe the biggest driver of this sort of seeming like really swift shift in the view of profession, of, of women's professional sports?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there's two things happening. Um one, the WNBA, you know, just negotiated one of the most progressive CBAs. This was um, a lot to look forward to going into this season in terms of, uh, visibility for the league, um, in, ter- in terms of the, the new labor conditions. There's a lot of excitement. Um, and then COVID happened. And I think that, you know, at first it was really hard because, uh, my, my, uh, co-host, Lindsay Gibbs, wrote a, on her newsletter, Power, Power Plays, um, wrote about this. She made an argument early in quarantine, like, when sports return, like, let the women go first. Like, this would help build women's sports, et cetera, et cetera. And then later she was like, okay, but like, actually, I didn't think sports were coming back before, like, the pandemic was over. And so, there, there, I admit, like, even now, kind of watching it, it's, I'm really excited to, for the wubble. I love all the content coming out of it. It's been very exciting just in general, but then also it's like, I don't like this, like I, you know, COVID. Um, but then at the same time, I think one of the things that we know to be true about women's sports is that when it's available and when it's accessible, people watch it. So one of the things that's happening now with both the NWSL coming back that they were ignored, by the way, there are so many headlines like this, this professional sports is back or whatever. And the NWSL had a successful challenge cup was the first professional sports back, um, in, in this country. Um, and they're, you know, they were on CBS and their ratings are up. Um, the WNBA has, has gotten more, um, airtime and their ratings are up. It's like that's. And that's what we've known. And so this is one of the thing that's happening, um, right now is that you, they are, uh, central. They are existing and to have the NBA and WNBA season coexisting and you have basketball being played at the same time and you can kind of, you know, be in touch with both and, and, and tuned into both is really great. Um, and I think that, you know, WNBA players, it has to be said, have been the vanguards. They have been from the Minnesota Lynx years ago to now have been really setting the standard in terms of athletic activism, in terms of engagement. You've had a number of WNBA players opt out for various reasons, but a lot of them are committed to social justice. Of course, this is coming after Maya Moore leaving for a year and and helping Jonathan Irons get out of prison and doing amazing work there. And so I think that there's just this kind of... um moment that the WNBA is having where they have, um, continued to be staunch advocates and leaders of many issues. They're, you they're playing under the say her name campaign to raise awareness about Breonna Taylor's murder. Um, and, and they are, you know, increasingly committed to racial justice and gender equity. And, um, they, and I think that it's a tremendous league to have kind of front and center and also just wobble content. You know, the thing with women athletes is a lot of them are bringing their kids into their their wobble and so the content coming out of the wnba like besides from the play has been the most adorable if you haven't already seen like please go find there's some twitter account that's just putting stories like videos from inside the wobble of like the kids who are so cute um and just running around in doing tiktok dances and things like that but i do think that that one of the things that we're seeing here is what happens when you put resources and visibility into women's sports um and and the work is nowhere near done of course um but i think that it is is just demonstrating the viability of them um and 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 it will be very interesting to see like you know where it goes from here and and how that translates you know at the at the collegiate level and things like that but so far uh it's been it's been, um, uh, I think, a strong start to um, to have women's sports back on the map. Yeah,
0: and I think you kind of, I don't know if you framed it just exactly like this, but we shouldn't forget, too, that there, you know, you talked about Maya Moore, uh, but there's some great personalities. In, oh, And those coming exactly. out, and, um, you know, they're not to say there's not men's, but there's just like in a lot of ways, like somebody like Megan Rapinoe is just like a little bit more out there than anybody else in, in sports. Yeah. And to me, it's awesome, you know, because I was like, well, it is. And I don't
1: know if you saw over quarantine because you said you like Sue Bird. Um, Megan Rapinoe and Sue Bird have the the best beyond anybody, the best Instagram uh, they started an Instagram <laughs> show called a Touch More. Um, they even have merchandise, <laughs> it, um, that went to charity, but it was, it was fun where they basically just got very drunk and talked on Instagram live to a number of pe- people. They had Jimmy Butler on, they had Diana Taurasi um, on where that, that conversation went for four hours, like four, hours um and they and Megan by the end by hour by the end of hour three was just it was funny they tell a story and and uh, Sue has told the story a number of times of like the first time that she took Megan to drink uh to like vacation with her and Diana Taurasi of course she played with at UConn um and and Penny um and Basically, it was like, UConn players clearly can drink anybody under the table because Megan could not hang. And so she's told the story multiple times. But to watch it in real time, w- when they're on, like, hour three of a conversation, Diana Tarasi is dropping gems about, like, what ownership would look like or, like, her aspirations to own a team. And they're talking, like, having some really deep, insightful, but also hilarious conversations. And Megan's, like, burping on the couch over there because she's too drunk to continue. It was absolutely you must watch TV. Like, it was the best thing that I watched all quarantine, honestly. Yeah,
0: I, I think that they have, uh, and I, who knows what anybody's relationship's like, but it's like, it's awesome, too, because, like, Megan's, like, completely, like, the wild child in public, and then in pro, and in Super's public persona is like much more buttoned down and then you see something like this and it's like completely flipped. It's like totally great. Exactly. It's, it's like, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. I, I mean, I enjoy it. I, cause I think I told you to start with is like one of the things about all the stuff that I do is because I love people so that I love to get to know, like know them and see them. And it's just, it's, it's awesome. And I, I I've appreciated the personalities coming out, um, so much, you know, so much. So I would point people towards that. Um, now, I want to sell some things for you, right? You have a great uh-huh. podcast. Um and I think um you know, so let's 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 talk about your podcast for a second. Um and then you also are doing sure, a panel called... next week on uh, yeah. for NPR. And I want to do that talk about that because it's um it points out at the myth of meritocracy and I think that we always have assumed that the smartest person wins and that's not necessarily the case unless I'm wrong. You tell me though.
1: Right. No, that def- Definitely not the case. <laughs> um, <laughs> or,
0: uh, it,
1: uh, especially, so for um, NPR's longstanding show, Only a Game is unfortunately coming to uh, a close after uh, 27 years. Um, but one of the last episodes they did was a special episode called um, Sports Racism and the Myth of Meritocracy. Um, and I was featured on it along with um uh Derek Jackson and Russell Duncan. We had great great, you know, conversations. Um and Karen Given hosts it and um, essentially they ran that and that's available now you can look it up on NPR on only a game um, but they wanted to do a larger panel to kind of go deeper than what was discussed to definitely like trouble this idea of meritocracy and thinking about you know we especially love I know I'm a walking cliche at times but we definitely love a useful sports metaphor and so thinking about the way like okay well we're maybe not on an even playing field and we're not all starting at the same place we're not all running exactly the same race and thinking about how sports can actually perpetuate racial inequities um, in terms of access or um, college sports in terms, there, there was a segment on like sports movies that are super field good, but maybe don't have the best takeaways all the time that are kind of like subtle. And so um, next week on August 12th, there'll be a digital virtual, whatever we're calling it, a virtual panel um, where we talk about this um, and you can submit questions, I think to the panel, beforehand um i think they're using the hashtag hashtag only a game um and then on wbur you can get all the information they're partnering with city space um to bring this panel to life and um it will be a virtual event there and i think that it, it's free of course but um i think that the registration is now live um and it's wednesday august 12th at 6 p.m so i will be I'll be there. Um, So that will be fun. And then, yeah, so my podcast, Burn It All Down, um, is the tagline is the feminist sports podcast you need. Um, And it's a podcast that we've been doing for three years. I'm one of five co-hosts. So I have the best co-hosts that are just the best, most important My. Some of the best minds in the game, I believe. So like Shireen Ahmed, um, is a writer and a sports activist. She's in Toronto. A lot of her work is focused on Muslim women in sports and the intersection of, of racism and misogyny. She's like the, a uh, hockey person and also uh soccer and uh, she's tremendous and then my one historian on on the podcast with me is Brenda Elsie she's an associate professor of history at Hofstra she studies Latin American sports and her newest book Football Era Women's Sports and Sexuality in Latin America is um absolutely phenomenal and so she is all thing anything you would ever need to know about global football, so soccer. Um, she is your person. Um, and then we have two other uh, um, writers, reporters on the team, uh, Lindsay Gibbs, who was formerly at Think Progress. Now she runs that uh, newsletter I mentioned, Power Plays. Um, and she really covers all thing women's sports. She's the one who will have all of the content for WNBA, for NWSL, um, just chock full of information. And then Jessica Luther. Um, and you might uh, be familiar with Jess's work. She's really kind of changed the game in terms of sports reporting and sexual assault. Um, she just had a piece this past week that came out um, with John Wortham about the Dallas Mavericks. She, um, you know, helped break the Baylor story. And um, I don't know how, honestly, she does the work she does because it's so heavy and it's so hard, but she is tremendous. And she has a new book out um with uh, Kavitha um, Davidson called How to Love Sports When They Don't Love You Back. Um, and so that's my team that I get to work with every week. And for three years, we've never taken a week off. We, we, uh, have a weekly burn pile where we toss in all the things, um, in sports that week that we hated that are usually racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic or the like. And the, you know, we all love sports immensely and we just don't want to accept them with, um, with the usual bullshit. And so a burn pile might say, Hey, you know, so you so you like to use racial slurs in front of your players. You're on the burn pile this week, right? Um, you know, those are the things that we burn. And then we um the other feature of the weekly episode are interviews. Um, and we have interviews with uh Olympians, with coaches, with professional athletes, with college athletes, with youth. We have interviews with um, you know, uh other journalists, we have Interviews with academics, really just kind of so many people. And that's my favorite thing about doing the podcast is the conversations we get to have. Um I know the last thing I'll say about it is that when this all started, one of my favorite things I did was a special episode called Black Women Athletes Speak Out, where I interviewed um 12 athletes, um, so WNBA players, uh, Olympians like Gwen Berry, who protested at Pan Am last year, AJ Andrews, um, some young players, um, black players in, um, both the NWSL and, and, um, the and NWNHL. I can never do the acronyms. Um, I talked to a 13 year old elite ballerina. I talked about martial arts. I talked to black Muslim women and, uh we put it all together and we had a special episode of of just them speaking out in this moment and then i followed it up um a few weeks later with um looking at black women taking action so i interviewed i don't know if you followed the story of um scrapyard fast pitch who whose owner um tweeted a picture of them at trump oh, and in yeah. Yeah. So, um, I talked to the one black player on that team and other black softball players. Um, and they walked us through like what it was like to be in that moment. Um, and then the decision that was made to leave the team and, and her whole team left with her and they started a different softball team called This Is Us. Um, they detached from scrapyard and that owner. And so we did a special episode on that. So those conversations to me, um, are. Are what I love about the podcast. We had another hot take with two of the women who had been some long standing activists in trying to end native mascotry. And, um, and we, you know, talk, revisited that conversation and, and interviewed them, um, got a hot take up when Washington football team changed its name. And so it's just, and then of course, if you just want like nuts and bolts, we have hot takes at like a full WNBA season preview, a full NWSL child child. Cup final preview, and and we do all sports, not just women's sports as well. So there'll definitely um, be some Premier League content going up soon. Um, and so I think that um, that's burn it all down. You can find us um, on the website burnitalldownpod. dot um, com, and we're on Twitter um, burnitalldownpod and instagram and facebook all of the places um and i would say on our website you also get show notes you get transcriptions we really want to be accessible um to folks and then there's a link there to patreon to get merch we have new uh buy ad flamethrower people who listen to our show they're flamethrowers um so they got like <laughs> flamethrower uh face masks now um a, a few of our listeners wrote in and we're like why can't we have a we are our uh one of our icons is like a woman who's screaming and her hair's on fire. Um, And they're like, I need this on a face mask. And so we just got them up and running. And so now we have, we have our flamethrower face mask and our matchbook face mask. So we're doing some great work. We're actually taking the first break we've had in three years, um, over the month of August to kind of retool the show. And we're going to do kind of a relaunch with all the best parts of the show and, and give ourselves a little bit of a break. Cause it's been, it's I think naively in March, we were like, how are we going to do a weekly sports podcast with no sports?
0: (laughs) (sighs) <laughs> it's been, it's, it, it's tough. I, I think yeah, uh, keeping I love up this stuff is like not it ain't easy.
1: Not, it will also like every week though. It was like like I think we were just like oh, there's no sports. So what are we gonna do? And instead, it was like oh, they're trying to bring sports back. Oh, Dana, what- it's gonna try to buy a a private island to have UFC 249. And like then you know stuff with NASCAR and like, all of a sudden we're like oh no there's like never a <laughs> end to the stories that we talk about. So it's actually been continuously busy and so it's it will be a much needed break and we're excited to kind of come back and keep bringing content. So that's that's what I'm working on. Um and and uh, yeah.
0: No, that you know, you you said it very well, and um, I'm going to just mirror your your idea that the, probably the greatest thing about doing the podcast is the people I get to talk to, um, and you know I'm so glad that I got a chance to talk to you today. Uh, hopefully, I did not embarrass myself. Um, <laughs> you know, thank you so much for doing this. Before you go, though, I want to plug your Twitter handle. Yes. What's your Twitter handle so we can get oh. people to follow you up on the Twitter?
1: Let me look. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it is apparently it is um, I think it's at, at Mira Rose M-I-R-A Rose 88.
0: Okay, perfect. Yeah, follow um, Mira Rose Davis on the Twitter. Connect with her. Uh, do all those things. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Yeah, and thank you again for having me on. Take
0: that was my conversation with Amira Rose Davis. Let me know what you think. Send me an email. It's daviddavewakeman.com. Dave uh, check me out on my website. It's daviddavewakeman.com. Dave you can connect with me on the social medias by searching for me on LinkedIn, David, Dave Wakeman, or you can follow me on the Twitter. It's at David Wakeman. Um, I used to joke all the time about if you know the guy with the Dave Wakeman Twitter handle, get it for me. Um, the guy still hasn't tweeted in like 10 or 12 years. I mean, I really want that thing. Okay. So get it for me. Um, make sure that, uh, you check out all the people who make this podcast, uh, run and who are big, um, reasons that the thing has been so successful over the years. Um, and that, you know, are just really great people and really great friends, you starting with Simon and Kat at booking protect, um, check them out, bookingprotect.com. Uh, the social media team led, um, you know, is doing some great stuff there with content on Instagram, um, things around uh, working remotely as a business development person, um, lessons learned during the pandemic and the work from home period, um, you know how innovation has come out of this period, uh, and we got a whole bunch of new things planned. Uh, now that I've been able to talk to some people and get some ideas together, uh, the the BookingProtect.com and the blog should definitely be bookmarked going forward. is going to be a great place to learn. Um, on top of that, you're going to want to make sure you check out the We Will Recover website that's wewillrecover.live um that's from the guys at activity stream and the girls um a, a super super team I talk about a and and Martin all the time because they are two of my best friends in the world um I love those guys to death I love all the people involved and they took action as soon as the pandemic started to impact people they said we're gonna create something so that people have a place to go to learn about new ideas to gain new ideas um to find new ideas, to find information to help um, stabilize their organization, move their organization forward during this pandemic and to be a part of the solution. You know, so check it out. It's um, I can't even remember all the organizations from around the world that are involved. I mean, My big mouth is there. Um, the Ticket Professionals UK team, Andrew, Carol, and all of those uh, great folks are helping out. Um, producing tons and tons of webinars over the past couple months to support the effort. Um, The TRG, uh, Made Media, uh, Intix, QQ, uh, Angela and Joe at the Ticketing Professionals Conference in Australia. Um, You know, it's just like a great group of people who have all come together uh, with the only expectation that we can give you ideas that will help you and your organizations gain some stability and gain some positive forward momentum because all of us know this is an incredibly challenging and difficult time for everybody. And we all want to help make sure that everybody makes this through, um, this period as safely and securely as possible. Even though I know it's not easy. Um, I know it's tough and I know that we, um, It can be a real struggle for folks. So saying that, if you need to talk to somebody, it might be about completely irrelevant stuff. I am great to talk to about barbecuing uh, meat or uh, Tottenham Hotspur football. Um, If you just need somebody to talk to or you're feeling overwhelmed, um, it can be about business. It can be about life. It can be about whatever. Make sure you connect with me. Um, it's a little bit of thing I can do is like, you know, you l- allow me into your earfo- earphone, ear pod, AirPods and headphones um, all the time. The least I can do is be there for you when you need me. Um, you know, so hit me up, David, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. Um, I can't vocalize this strongly enough that if you need to talk to me, if you want to connect with me, if you just um you know need some some jokes hell, I can do that too. Um, you know make sure you hit me up I'm totally happy to be here for you now and I, I couldn't be more sincere when I say that um, make sure you check out since you're listening if you got the hour and 22 minutes in this thing if you don't get the talking tickets newsletter I mean come on you should get it it's you can check out my website David Dave Wake or Dave Wakeman uh, go to the newsletter tab click on that thing it comes out every Friday it's five stories uh, with some analysis and some ta- uh, action items Um, it's really, people love it. Um, it it has opened up, um, just really, really tremendous conversations with people, opportunities. Um, it's great. It's uh, probably the thing I enjoy doing the, the most each week because it makes me stay on top of everything. It makes me think about things, um, a lot more thoroughly and, It's just fun to do, and it's fun to see the reaction that people get um, when people tell me what their take is on an idea. It's awesome. So check that out, Um, you know, but thank you so much for being here. Uh, There's a lot of podcasts in the shoot. Uh, They're probably going to come fast and furious, so um, hopefully I don't overwhelm you. But until next time, I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy.